Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. Now I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and uh, health-related topics, believe it or not, from an authentically Catholic perspective, for sure. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org, and you can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, all three of us co-hosts will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network as we discuss prenatal testing. Mm. Yes, you know, parents are testing their kids earlier and earlier in schools to get them ahead. This has nothing to do with that. So Chris will serve as our expert while Andrew and I will deluge him with questions. So Chris, a couple months ago, somebody brought an article to me from the New York Times saying that all of these prenatal tests are not as good as we think they are. And when they find something that sounds scary, they're wrong more often than they're right. Tell us how, (laughs) why are we covering this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great topic because, you know, you can't pretend that this is not available. You can't stick your head in the sand. It's still available. Um, and testing, any kind of testing, whether we're talking about testing in your realm or testing in my realm, you know, a test is as good as, as what it's designed to do. And there are these two complicated phrases that we should make listeners aware of. Um, positive predictive value and negative predictive value. You're probably having PTSD from high school statistics at this point. (laughs) But the simple way to understand that is if a test says something is normal, meaning it's healthy, it's okay, that's its negative predictive value. If a test says something is wrong, that's its positive predictive value. If something is actually wrong. So across the board, for the most part, especially the newer prenatal tests that we'll talk about more in a few minutes, the so-called cell-free DNA testing, they are much more valuable if they say everything is all right. If they say, for instance, the child has maybe trisomy 21, it's not as it's not as accurate, so to speak, as if it says the child doesn't have trisomy 21. And so that doesn't mean it's a bad test. It just means that you have to understand that when you go to interpret the results. So yeah, a lot of people just, when they see something in writing or on the computer screen, that's what it is. Right. But you could have a positive predictive value that's only 50%, which meaning 50% of the time it says you've got this problem, you don't. Good point. I mean, in my, again, in my area, pap smears. Pap smears have a wonderful negative predictive value. If they say you're normal, you're normal. If they say you're not, well, you might be, you might not be. <laughs> I, I think it was probably jarring for a lot of people, and that's why the Times ran the story that, mm. wait, if I if I get this result, can I trust it? But the whole detail isn't what we're looking for. We're looking, this, this is where medicine's backwards. We're hoping that things are negative, usually, right. Yeah, exactly. right? And if it's negative, that's good. When it's positive, that's when it gets really challenging because these things are so rare, right? Mm. Exactly. And, you know, it... it it just depends, and, and that's where Twitter is not a great source of you know medical guidance. You have to understand how prevalent is the condition. We're going to talk more, I think, in this episode about what's a diagnostic or a screening test mm-hmm. versus you know a diagnostic versus screening test. Yes, they're radically different, and the value of the results have to be interpreted within the context of those two choices. Now, Andrew, when you testified in the Indiana legislature uh, about fetal anomalies, uh, you said some striking things that didn't make them change their their minds. Yeah, I, I thought it was great, uh, but that's just me. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, these tests, the things that people who want to have an abortion if their child is not healthy. These are the tests they're using, and they're they're wrong, mm-hmm. you know? And I know one patient that I cared for, they had a test that said that they were going to have a little baby girl, and they were shocked when they delivered a little baby boy. And they said, <laughs> I thought these tests were perfect. Well, those are the same tests some people use to make abortion decisions. Now, we know there's a lot of good reasons for testing, apart from people who would want to be abortion-minded, but these tests are not perfect. And so when to use them, when not to. I, I think a lot of times ladies might even feel like, am I allowed to test? You know, I would never have an abortion. Is it wrong to get this test just because mm. I want to know? I like, I like the approach of saying, before you get any medical test, you should already know what you're going to do with the results. Yes. Right? If, you have, if your knee hurts and you say, no matter what, I'm not having knee surgery, 
why would you go get the MRI to evaluate your knee? Right. Um, and so before you get a result back, you should already know if it's this, I'm going to do this. If it's this, I'm going to do this. And then even stepping further back, I think, specific to pregnancy, is a husband and wife should say, what are the tests available? What do we want to know? What do we not want to know? What are we likely to do with those results? Do we want to test for everything? Do we want to test for anything? And a good provider should help you walk through uh, and understanding all of those options. And Chris, is there any way that, you know, America Post Dobbs or with trigger laws that any of this testing is affected? Not that I can think of. You know, th these are tests that are FDA approved and readily available. Now, what one does with the results, again, to Andrew's point, some people could choose to uh, an abort a certain gender. Sure. Uh, a test could say that a child has maybe trisomy 21. Uh, and they could choose to abort that pregnancy, depending on where they live and what's legal in their state. But that's not unique to the testing uh, as, as it relates to the Dobbs decision. Good. Well, I think before we dive into prenatal testing headfirst, uh, we'll do our little medical trivia question of the day. So the category is babies. What else would it be? <laughs> but as I did in the last show, I figured out a way to bring dermatology into baby life. We'd be disappointed <laughs> with anything yes. else. <laughs> so the question, when a baby is born, it's covered in a natural lubricant that helps it through the birth canal. First question, what is the name of this cheesy varnish? And second, what are the two main components that form this covering? You'll have to hang on till the end of the show to find out, but we'll be back with more on prenatal testing here on Dr. Doctor in just a moment. And we are here with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Chris Stroud, our resident obstetrician gynecologist. Thank goodness you picked a good specialty, Chris, and it's not something so tangential. We've got lots of topics. Yes. Today's prenatal testing. Tell us when this first came around and how it came to be. Yeah, good question. I mean, it depends on what we mean by testing, I suppose. But I mean, the idea of I want to know, I guess that came around when humanity started, right? Yes. But, you know, in terms of pregnancy, way before there was any technology, you know, Andrew, you and I measure the, the mom's belly with a tape measure. Pretty low technology, high yield, yeah. tells us a lot about the baby. Ultrasound sort of made its way on into the scene really in the 1950s, but when you look at those pictures, it almost doesn't count as a picture. They were so bad. <laughs> um, but real-time moving imaging and ultrasound in the, in the 70s, uh, amniocentesis for chromosomal analysis, that's where a needle's passed through the mom's stomach into the uterus, um, and to get some of the fluid around the baby. That was really late 1950s when that showed up on the scene. Um, and then really as recently as 2007, ACOG uh, produced something saying that aneuploidy screening, we'll talk about what aneuploidy means as we go, should really be available and offered to everyone. Hmm. So we've gone from just measuring somebody's belly with a tape measure to everyone should be offered really advanced kind of high-tech blood-based testing. Um, so that's sort of the, the timeline that got us where we are. And, and why, why get a test? Good question. I mean, I ask parents that every time I talk to them. Why are you getting a test? Well, because it's available. Okay, that's a reason, but is that really the reason that you want? Oh, well, I have a relative who has cystic fibrosis. Ah, that's a different story altogether. Then I would say, okay, why do you want to find out if your baby has cystic fibrosis? Well, because we would move to a different school system or something like that. You know, the, the sort of the dirty secret in prenatal diagnosis and testing is the industry is really set up for abortion. Let's find anomalies so that right-thinking people could have a termination and not deliver a child that wasn't somehow perfect. But the reality is there are plenty of great non-abortion-related reasons for right-thinking pro-life couples uh, to want to pursue testing. It's, it's so interesting. I, we were speaking about when I was at the State House, and one of the mm -hmm. pro-abortion pediatricians shared her abortion story about uh, a child that was going to have cleft palate, mm. and she chose to have an abortion. And I'm thinking oh to myself, my. how do you care for kids with cleft palate? Yeah, that must be a tricky situation. You know, but not everybody wow. does prenatal testing for abortion. There's other legitimate reasons, too, and sure. some standard, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of a couple that I took care of some time ago that uh, had had a stillbirth, sadly, at term, and that child had Down syndrome or trisomy 21. 
they found themselves pregnant again, having moved here from another country, and they desperately wanted to know if this child had Down syndrome, because if it did, they were going to move back to their mm-hmm. other country where their family lived. I've heard husbands say, we're at risk for Down syndrome. I'll not take this traveling job if you tell me that our child is going to have you know, potentially special needs. So listeners, absolutely, this is not something to be ashamed of, as you point out, Andrew. There are very good and valid reasons for wanting testing that have nothing to do with abortion, even though the industry sort of developed all of these tests as part of the abortion agenda. Now, now Chris, I think you've mentioned that uh, advanced maternal age was defined uh, because of some of these tests. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I have my own story here. Uh, we were uh, around 42 when uh, we had our last um, pregnancy. And I remember that Sally went in for her <coughs> ultrasound. It was about mm, three, four months in. And she took our oldest daughter in with her. And they're in there in the Ultrasound tech is describing, yep, uh, and here's the head of baby A, and there's the head of baby B. And to which <laughs> both my wife and daughter scream because nobody had told them anything yet. <laughs> well, I call my wife, knowing she had the ultrasound done, I said, so honey, um, you know, is it a boy or a girl? Because after we had a boy and a girl, we just wanted to know for sure. prepping the room. And she said, oh, oh, it's, it's a boy. I said, oh, okay, fine. So I get home that night, and I say, so... Uh, she says, um, I got to talk to you about the ultrasound. Oh, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's almost 42. Baby might have Down syndrome. Fine. We'll, sure. we'll deal with it. So that's what I'm thinking. I sit down and she goes, you know, I said, we, we, we now have to come up with two names instead of one. I'm like, what? Oh, great. But I mean, the <laughs> thought, I'm so happy that thought came through my mind that baby could have trisomy 21 sure. and no big deal, you know, right. and we'd prep for it. So that would be a good reason for yeah. a test. So tell me about advanced maternal age, yeah. what it is and how it plays into the testing. Yeah, realm. it's almost comical, but of historical value. So 35 is considered advanced maternal age. Mm. And I distinctly remember in medical school thinking, advanced maternal age at 35, I mean, who gets pregnant at 35? Aren't they all using walkers and things? <laughs> Does the marital act still occur when people are that elderly? Uh, now, sitting here talking to you at 58, 35 seems pretty darn young. And we had most four of our seven children at 35. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but what's interesting that listeners might be shocked to learn, a little bit of trivia, is um, 35 became advanced maternal age wow. because of Down syndrome. One reason and one reason only. The probability of having a child with trisomy 21 at the age of 35 is about 1%. Um, That's a child at term is about 1%. Sure. Um, To diagnose Down syndrome in the old days, meaning 10, 12 years ago, um, you had to do an amniocentesis. So you passed the needle in, got some of the fluid from around the baby, and then looked at the chromosomes to see if there was the normal number. That procedure comes with a risk yes. of causing a miscarriage. What's that, the risk? About 1%. Oh. So 1% chance of finding downs, about 1% chance of causing a loss looking for downs. So that became established as the so-called break-even age. And then every year after 35, the probability slightly increases of trisomy 21. But that's the only thing there is about 35. It's all about the probability of Down syndrome. Oh, my goodness. That's really interesting. Yeah. I know in, in talking to my wife and, and other patients, they're, they're offended sometimes <laughs> at this diagnosis or this uh, idea that advanced maternal age or the other term I've heard before is elderly gravidox. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so tell you tell a 35-year-old lady, patients, elderly. <laughs> yeah, before they even, maybe before they even finish college, they're already advanced and elderly <laughs> gravidox. Yeah, it is, a, it is a bit ludicrous. And it, it displays a bias in the system for let's do whatever we can to find Down syndrome. Uh, but that's how it came about. Wow. And, um, you know, one of our heroes is Dr. Jerome Lejeune. Uh-huh. What's his role in all this, Chris? Well, he is, is, as our astute listeners know, we talk about him a lot. He actually discovered that Down syndrome was caused by having an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. That's called trisomy. An abnormal number of chromosomes is called aneuploidy. Uh, but he figured out trisomy 21 and then spent the rest of his career trying to protect those children from really sort of state-driven abortion. Right. So his finding was used to develop the first reason to do amniocentesis. Exactly. That's right. And it horrified him. 
Mm. Yeah, and hopefully he's going to be a saint before too long. Yeah, he's, he's venerable on, now. He's on that pathway. That's right, as he should really, be. As he should be. So, what a blessing. I, I went to my old alma mater, Mayo Clinic's website, and they had a pretty good explanation uh, for the public on prenatal testing. And they make a distinction between screening tests and diagnostic tests. Wow. Explain that to us, Chris. Yeah, it's applicable in this conversation to pregnancy, but it's the same if we're talking about mammograms or a whole host of other tests, an EKG and the like. But uh, in, in our topic that we're discussing today, a screening test is something that you do to a broad population, and it's looking for an indication something might be wrong. Uh, the best example of a, a pregnancy screening test that comes to mind for me is the alpha-fetoprotein test, or the AFP. It used to be called the triple screen because it was combined with a few other things. Now it's called the quad screen because it's combined with three other things. But that was a test that you could give everyone if you chose to. And if something came up on that test, then you would pursue something that would give you a specific answer. That's called a diagnostic test. So screening versus diagnostic is the general versus the specific. So no one should make a decision based on a screening test. No, they could make a decision to pursue a diagnostic test or not, but they certainly should not make a decision about the future of their child based on a screening test. This might be a good time to plug one of our old shows too on incidental findings, uh, yes. which uh, not OB related, but speaks to some of these screening versus diagnostic testing questions. Yeah. That is a good point with our, yeah, with Brandon Brown, who also did an episode with us on uh, treating in utero babies for things uh, surgically, which is just remarkable. So um, we already covered that. Uh, so blah, blah, blah. Um, Chris, do you have a story <laughs> about, about a, uh, you know, we had talked about Brandon Brown talking mm. about prenatal surgery. Oh, absolutely. T tell us how that might be the outcome, a positive outcome of prenatal testing. Yeah, a very good friend of mine who works in my practice as a provider um, had a screening ultrasound done, uh, not a diagnostic, but a screening ultrasound done, and we found something. It looked like there might be a spina bifida. Uh, that's, a, that's a defect in the neural tube. It's called a neural tube defect where the spinal cord herniates outside of the spinal column and in some cases all the way outside of the body. It can be covered with skin or not covered with skin. Um, and so we found this, then we went on to the more specific diagnostic test, confirmed, yep, in fact, this is spina bifida. And what was the diagnostic test? Uh, an ultrasound, an early ultrasound. Yeah, that's right. So, so ultrasound. two ultrasounds? Yeah, there's a, there's a more diagnostic ultrasound and a more screening ultrasound that can be done. So what's different about the diagnostic ultrasound? Yeah, that's usually done by someone with a higher level of expertise, with a higher level of technology okay, that, is, that is looking for a whole host of other things that might affirm the suspicion. Now, a better example for spina bifida or neural tube defects is the quad screen, the blood test. It tests for certain chemicals in the mm -hmm. mom's blood that suggest maybe certain things are leaking into the amniotic ah. fluid from a defect in the spinal. Okay. And then that would be followed up by an ultrasound. And then that would likely be followed up by the higher level ultrasound after that. But in this case, we found the spina bifida, um, and she traveled to Cincinnati, just like uh, I, I think our, our guests way back in that show referenced Cincinnati Children's Hospital, unabashed plug for them. Um, and she had fetal surgery, uh, where they went into her, went into the uterus, operated on her baby, put her uterus back together again, and she went on to deliver a remarkable baby, a little bit premature. She had some she had some struggles, but she delivered a beautiful baby girl that I believe is about two years old now, that the last time I saw her in my office, she was walking around uh, like any toddlers walking around at two years and old. And if she hadn't been treated in utero, what would the outcome In all likelihood, like? she would be wheelchair-bound, in all likelihood. Wheelchair-bound for life? Yeah, absolutely makes that much of a difference. Absolutely that much difference. So remarkable things that can be done. Uh, and, it, and it really speaks to your point, Andrew. There's great reasons to pursue genetic and prenatal testing that have nothing to do with termination. I, I think at least some of the folks I've talked to, uh, they might feel guilty about doing any testing. Like, yeah. do I not trust God to take care of my baby? Mm. Am I trying to take control of the situation? Um, I know I'm not going to have an abortion. Is there ever a good reason to get a test? But that story is 
pretty compelling. I think it is compelling. I mean, you know, this mother changed her daughter's life yes. by finding this diagnosis. The remarkable thing is the technology that's evolved for us to be able to treat these things. But I would say no reason to feel guilty, just like you do when you're picking the best educational path for your child. You're just trying to give them the best you can give them as a parent. The same would be true for prenatal testing. Chris, can you tell us some of the standard prenatal screening tests that you would do? Well, in fact, could you put it in the context of couples in there talking their first prenatal visit, yeah. the first talk you have with them about testing, how do you, how do you have that conversation? Yeah, it, something along the lines of, you know, there's a lot of testing technology that's available. Are you familiar with it? Are you familiar with any of them? Are there things in your collective family histories that you're concerned about? You know, cystic fibrosis, mm -hmm. uh, muscular dystrophy, any of the inherited, you know, genetic-based uh, diseases. Sometimes there is. Sometimes it doesn't come up until we have that discussion. Uh, sometimes people have forgotten about a distant aunt or an uncle who had uh, an issue. But are there cardiovascular problems, you know, cardiac malformations, things like that? So we have that conversation. And then based on their values, their interests, their concerns, I can say, look, here's an entire menu of options that are available. And then we can discuss the pros and the cons and the strengths and the weaknesses of all of those technologies. But in a very basic sense, a blood test is the first one we do for blood type. We want to know if the mom's Rh negative or Rh positive. That's ancient, but it's still very, very relevant. Uh, and then we talk about other things that are screening, like maybe an early ultrasound, where we look at what's called the nuchal translucency. That's a great term. It's the thickness of the skin on the back of the baby's neck. Uh, and then the quad screen that we've talked about, that could become something that we would talk about, a later ultrasound. What's in the, in the quad screen? Okay, so alpha fetoprotein. Estradiol, you're going to put me on the, on the, uh, on the limb here. Al uh, alpha fetoprotein, estradiol, uh, HCG, and the fourth one I just went blank on because I'm old. Um, <laughs> but there are four components, chemicals, if you will, right. that are in that screen. And then you plug the values in of each of those, and it'll give you, is this an increased concern for a whole host of conditions, okay. most notably neural tube defects sure. and trisomy. And so neural tube defect, um, spina bifida is one. What are some others? Anencephaly would be another example of that, where the brain and the skull aren't, aren't completely formed. Yes. Now, you, you had mentioned the later ultrasound. We refer that as the anatomy scan, we I think. We often call it that. That's right. But that, the whole reason insurance pays for that is so we know if it's a boy or a girl, right? <laughs> that's not exactly. Yeah. So that's about assessing the baby's anatomy. And if you look at it, the report, it's a long list of things, really head-to-toe evaluation. Is the brain structure normal? Is the heart structure normal? Is there a stomach? Are there kidneys? Is there a bladder? Um, are there the right number of limbs? And then we measure a lot of things that will give us, when we plug it into a program, the baby's estimated age. Well, how does that age compare to the menstrual dating mm -hmm. age? In other words, is the baby growing appropriately? But that's probably the most yielding and high-tech uh, imaging test that we have in pregnancy. And most people get ultrasounds when they're pregnant in America. I would say the vast majority of pregnant women in America get at least one, if not more, ultrasounds. There are still people that elect not to, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but as we've talked about in this example of spina bifida, there's good reasons to get an ultrasound. But we still have patients who say we've thought it through and we've elected not to get an ultrasound. I guess since that's such a common one, what, what amount of them are normal and what amount are abnormal and can we trust that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. You know, uh, fortunately, thanks be to God, the vast majority of babies are absolutely normal. Um, and then I guess in some degree, not to split hairs, but it depends on what you mean by normal. Um, sure. You know, you know, they could be funny looking and still be normal, <laughs> right? That's related to your genes and your family members. Um, but when we say normal, we really mean, are there major structural defects like cardiovascular disease, the baby's born without all four chambers of the heart? Or maybe is their stomach not connected to their intestinal system? Or maybe is there a spina bifida or a neural tube defect? Ultrasound is very, very good at detecting that, all of those problems. 
Now, this might relate and might not, but America compared to other countries doesn't have a great record of of prenatal health and um, you know or outcomes, early, prenatal outcomes, prenatal yeah. outcomes. Is that related more to the the health of the the mom, maybe being you know drinking too much alcohol or taking illicit drugs, or is it related to a lack of testing, both or neither? I mean, it's a it's an important question. I think the honest answer is it isn't known, and maybe even more honest, I'm not even sure it's knowable. Um, you know, people debate constantly in academia of the value of prenatal care. We certainly learned during the pandemic that we could do a lot fewer prenatal visits and and nothing seemed to change. Ah. You know, the thing that's probably the most valuable about prenatal care is picking up the common complications, high blood pressure problems, diabetes problems, growth problems with the baby. And then the other component is establishing rapport and relationship with the people that are going to attend your birth. But it isn't really clear why in some countries that you would think otherwise, outcomes are really pretty good yes. without a lot of technological intervention. Right. And, and Chris, I know before we, we have to go to our break, tell us just a little bit about some of you know, the diagnostic testing. How often do you have to do a diagnostic test on, on a pregnancy? Yeah, have to and have the opportunity to are radically different. So, you know, having the opportunity to do a diagnostic test is usually a function of the parents' preferences and and their desires. Did they get a screening test that led us to think there could be something wrong and therefore we need a higher level diagnostic test? Or do they have a family history or a personal history that statistically makes them more likely to have a child with a various uh, condition? Um, So it really just depends. I would say most, as I mentioned with ultrasound, most families are interested in some degree or another with some level or another uh, of screening test. Whether that is gender or whether it's cystic fibrosis or whether it's the aneuploidies, trisomy 21. I think most couples have some degree of interest. The difference would be how far are they willing to go to find out. Very good. And on that note, we'll take a break here on Dr. Doctor. And after the break, we'll talk more about prenatal testing and uh, when it can be helpful. And we are back with Dr. Doctor, talking to Dr. Chris Stroud about all things prenatal testing. And the one that everybody is hung in there to hear about is the new cell-free DNA. This is the magical blood test that can tell you if it's a boy or a girl. <laughs> the only thing we care about super early, right? So tell us about that, Chris. Yeah, I, I wish I'd thought of this technology. It's really pretty brilliant. Someone, much smarter than I, figured out that There are little pieces of the baby's DNA floating around in the mother's bloodstream. And that you could draw blood from the mother and do some really sophisticated filtering, if you will, and capture that fetal DNA. Well, now you've got fetal DNA, so you can test that. You can see, are there the right number of chromosomes? Um, is, Is there an X or a Y? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? There's only two choices, by the way, for listeners. (laughs) Um, And it was really a brilliant sort of technological advance. Um, It's it's produced under a couple of trade names. Panorama is one. Um, The Clary Test is another. There are a few other companies, but it's the same technology. And it can be done, depending on the company, right around 11 to 13 weeks. So very early, long before you could see gender on ultrasound, you can now, among other things, get a blood test done and find out the gender, but find out a lot of things. Uh, and that's, that's really been a radical change to be able to get a blood test that gives you that kind of information that early. And, and this is the, the testing technology that the New York Times was talking about, that they can give you information about rare things, but when it gives you the scary result, it's more wrong than right. Yeah. What what things does this technology test for besides sex? Yeah, there's a there's a whole long list. Um, I guess I would say the most common is when you'll, you'll get gender, you'll get the number of chromosomes. Well, when you say it that way, that means you can rule out trisomy 21, trisomy 11, trisomy 18, all of those aneuploidy conditions where the number is wrong on right. the chromosomes. 
Um, you can also get a lot of other things that are called micro deletions, which are really obscure, kind of rare, in some cases, metabolic diseases uh, and the like. You, you can also, you don't get information, I should point out, about neural tube defects. Mm. And that's a confusing topic. There's Patients will often say, you mean you have this amazing new technology that'll tell me if the baby has trisomy 21, but I have to use the old-fashioned quad test to figure out if I'm at risk for neural tube mm -hmm. defects? And the answer is yes. A little confusing, but yes, that's the answer. So there's a whole long list of, of test results available, but mostly they can look at the chromosomes and any condition related to chromosomes. It's probably worth pointing out, and I don't mean to, to make the topic more confusing, not all abnormalities in children are related to chromosomes. So, for instance, uh, maybe a congenital heart anomaly where the heart mm. is formed improperly. That child's chromosomes are perfectly normal. Mm. Uh, or a child who has spinal bifida right. uh, or anencephaly where most of the brain mm. is missing. Which is why you have to wait later for a test that shows the leakage of that alpha fetoprotein. Exactly. So you have to wait for a structural anomaly to form. Right. So not all anomalies are related to chromosomes. A lot of them are, and that's available. But it's, it's not a perfect test in that sense. But then I think to your topic, which is an important one we, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, this positive and negative predictive value. You know, if it says the baby has trisomy 21, and then we wait and deliver the child and find out, um, it's more likely to be negative or incorrect. If it says the child does not have trisomy 21, it is very, very likely that the child, in fact, does not have trisomy 21. So it has a better negative predictive value than it does positive predictive value. You have to just wrap your brain around that, listeners. It's a little hard to... Sometimes hard to I think people talk about that as sensitivity. Mm -hmm. It's sensitive for picking up things that are not perfect, but that's not specific. specific. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. How many people get that test? I, I don't know. I, I'll have a biased answer, right? Uh, because you, of the nature of my practice. True. Uh, I take care of a lot of patients who think just like the three of us do and who like many of our listeners do. So if, if we said how many of my patients get this test versus how many patients get this test who live in Manhattan, I think the number is probably radically different. Um, I do see an increasing number of people that they're just dying to know the gender. And they just, they can't stand the thoughts of waiting even until 20 weeks. Wow. You know, it's our fallen nature. We just have to know, right? Um, I think that's becoming increasingly uh, popular. It's not a very expensive test in the medical testing realm, somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 if you just pay cash out of pocket. Uh, and so that's made it available to a lot of people. So I think it's becoming increasingly popular. Tell us, especially related to this technology, but even other testing, tell us about a time when it was a bad idea to do a test and, and maybe there was a negative outcome. Or is there never a bad time to do a test if you're interested? Yeah, it, you know, it's so difficult, and it boils down to – here we're talking about high, very advanced technology, right, which is neat, and it's exciting, and it's fun. But at least in my way of thinking, the answer to your question is the more difficult one, and that one comes from uh, a trusting, longitudinal relationship with a provider where – the provider knows your values, you understand the provider's values, and you have the kind of relationship where you can say, I'm concerned about this, or I feel guilty about being concerned about this. Should I be guilty? Should I be worried? Is this just because I watched that, you know, that bad Netflix film that had this problem in it? Uh, and, and that's hard to do when, when you don't have any trust and you don't have a relationship with someone. But you know, certainly there are good reasons and I would argue not so good reasons to get a test done. The worst scenario I can think of is when you get a test, you don't understand the results. Maybe the provider didn't do their best job at making you understand the results and you act on those results and you ended up acting incorrectly. Hmm. You know, the terrible example that I can think of is a screening test said increased risk for Down syndrome. Um, the woman got an amniocentesis done to see if she had Down syndrome, and she was the 1%. So her, she miscarried a few days later. A few weeks later, the results come in the mail, and guess what? The chromosomes were normal. Mm. So she had a test, 
and acted on a result and had a, a complication of a result that was no result at all. Yes. And, and that's the worst probably scenario that you can think of. I guess the other worst scenario that, that anybody could imagine would be a family choosing to terminate a pregnancy mm-hmm. based on a test, and it turns out the test was wrong. So, I mean, I guess kind of one of the overarching things I know we had talked about off air, we had just got done talking about how good these tests are, <laughs> and it's really good you should do them. And then now it's like, oh, maybe yeah. we shouldn't. What does it mean to be Catholic and pregnant? <laughs> how do you think about this? Yeah, that, that, I think, is the more interesting topic. Uh, it has nothing to do with technology, does it? It's, it goes back to that, that relationship. And so I would argue couples, long before they conceive their child, they ought to be having that conversation. Who are we? What do we believe in? How are we going to raise our children? Are we going to do prenatal testing? In other words, do we care if this child has Down syndrome or, or something else? Uh, are we worried about certain conditions because they're in our family or maybe maybe we have them? Are we trying to plan what kind of jobs or careers we're going to pursue based on the health of our children? You know, those are really important, deep, intimate conversations that need to take place, not just once, but over and over through time. And then I think out of those conversations, a much better conversation with your provider can take place. And then it really gets back to something we've talked about on this show so many times. You need that kind of relationship with your provider. That's what it means to be a Catholic provider, I hope. Uh, but it really just means what, what it is to be a good physician, right? Uh, we'd like to think that all Catholic physicians are good <laughs> physicians. That's probably not fair to say. But that's what it means. You need to have that kind of conversation and that kind of relationship with your provider. So here's a loaded question, Chris. Oh, good. Before... Uh, your conversion is when you had your children. Mm. How did you and your wife approach prenatal testing then, and how would you approach it now any differently knowing what you know now? Yeah, that is a good question, isn't it? You got me off guard. I wasn't expecting that one. Um, You know, simplistically, I think in some ways we might do some of the testing, but we would do that testing with a much more informed mindset. And we would already know uh, we're not interested in Down syndrome because it doesn't matter to us. But we might be interested in spina bifida because of the example that I gave. So we would probably be selective in our testing, and we would be very thoughtful and very intentional about what we were going to do with the results before we even had the results. So we talked about the spina bifida in your surgery. What else? Other findings can be dealt with pre-birth to help the outcome for a baby. You know, it depends on the specific kind of test, but certainly neural tube defects now with the the surgical technology is a great example. Uh, You know, finding out if, let's, let's say a woman knows that she's a carrier for cystic fibrosis. We can do a blood test for her and find out that the baby's also a carrier. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't matter for either of them unless her husband is a carrier. Well, then we could test her husband if he's a carrier. Then we can say to her, there's roughly a one in four chance Mm -hmm. that your child has cystic fibrosis. Well, then when I hand that baby to Andrew to take care of, he already knows he's dealing with an increased probability Mm -hmm. of a child with cystic fibrosis. So there's a lot of value in things like that. Uh, Screening tests for genetic and metabolic abnormalities, uh, ultrasound tests for anatomic abnormalities, plenty of things that can be gained and for good reason. There's other surgical problems that can be fixed in the womb as well. I'm thinking of the abdominal versions. Gastroschisis and phalloceal. And that list is going to continue to grow. Yeah, I think one of the things that you brought up, Chris, that's a really good point, is the afterbirth or even birthing considerations. I mean, if you know that your baby's likely going to have issues transitioning after birth, mm. you're going to make different birth decisions, maybe sure. go to a fancy hospital that you yes. wouldn't have gone to otherwise. Yeah, I think that's one of the best arguments for the 20-week or the anatomy ultrasound is for cardiac malformations. If I know this child has a severe cardiac malformation, I think you could easily argue the child's opportunity for survival uh, and to do well is much greater uh, at a specialty pediatric hospital that has those kinds of resources to do pediatric surgery, pediatric cardiology right away. And you know, one of the things on kind of the pediatric side that I see a lot there's some things that are identified on that anatomy scan that we would not necessarily identify 
readily later. And I'm thinking of an example where the kidneys are having trouble uh-huh. processing the fluid. Uh, if we don't see that on the anatomy ultrasound, there's not an age when we give a kid an, a renal ultrasound. <laughs> and some of those kids need surgery to preserve their kidney function. Mm. The only way you would know is when their kidneys start failing later right. and you're in the transplant scenario. Ooh. So there's there's other opportunities to prevent disease even after birth with some of these things. Yeah, you know, I, you remind me of an important topic that we haven't touched on, and that is safety. Uh, a lot of prenatal testing uh, involves ultrasound usage. And if you Google and dive deep, or not even all that deep, you'll see opinion pieces on the safety of ultrasound for the babies and that it hasn't been adequately tested and things like this. And I would disagree with that. If there's anything that has been tested and tested and tested, it's got to be ultrasound in pregnancy. There is really no credible evidence at all that ultrasound poses a risk to a developing baby. Uh, and so don't don't let that misinformation steer you away from, to your point, could be really valuable information. I, I saw someplace, maybe you told me, <laughs> that there's more left-handers because of ultrasound. Is that true? <laughs> I didn't tell you that. I don't know. <laughs> that, that might be misinformation. I, I thought that was the only thing that was associated with, like, multiple, multiple ultrasounds. But they're also not tying people's hands behind their back anymore either. Right. So yeah. I'm I don't not know. familiar with that one. Sorry. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about this. Chris, maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit to the people who get the hard diagnoses. Mm. Yes. What, what is the Catholic response when you get one of these diagnoses that we looked for, but there's not a clear treatment? You know, it's not spina bifida you can fix. It's something scary, and it's something that's going to change your life when the baby arrives. Yeah, simplistically, but I think uh, very applicable. The response can be one thing and one thing only, and that's love. Um, and that, as a provider, the first thing we need to say is, I'm sorry your baby has this. I know you love them. Uh, and I know that you're already a terrific mother and that you're going to be an even more terrific mother uh, through time. Because the world says, oh, isn't it great we found this? Now you can terminate. So in my own practice, when we find a serious abnormality, sometimes it might be called a lethal abnormality where it's very likely the child will die before mm-hmm. birth or immediately after birth. The first thing we do is warn our patients that as they see people in this process, they may be counseled to terminate and that they don't have to, that we'll walk that walk with them. Uh, we've had episodes where we dedicated discussions to perinatal hospice yes. and similar topics. But the response, I would argue, especially as a Catholic provider, has got to be love. And the same is true from the parents. Uh, You're no less of a parent because your child has a a serious lethal anomaly. Um, And that's got to be the response. And they need help. They need guidance. They need support. Uh, As as anyone listening can imagine, that's devastating news. Um, But we need to go there with them, and we need to walk that difficult walk with them. So one thing that comes to mind... um, is genetic counseling. Uh, sure. When I was in medical school, our genetics class was taught by a world-class, 100% pro-life Jewish um, guy named Jaime Gordon. Wow. And I wish I'd, I, I did have a one-on-one meeting with him once, and he was just wonderful. He said, first thing he said, Tom, there's no reason ever to have an abortion. It's like, wow, <laughs> I heard this at Mayo Clinic. So now I look at genetic counseling from my limited knowledge as people who tell you reasons to have abortions. Mm. What is the role of genetic counseling, and how does a couple know they can trust the genetic counselor. Yeah, isn't isn't that a tough topic? You know, th- I would say the role of the gen- genetics counselor is to help patients understand these findings. So what what does it mean that your last child had a, a serious cardiac malformation? What's the probability your next child will have mm-hmm. it? Is that genetic? Is it not genetic? What does it mean? Um, what about obscure, maybe metabolic problems? Um, what's the probability of it happening again? Genetics counselors, um, I don't want to in any way take away from their expertise, but in some ways they're they're what you might call practical statisticians. Mm. They're really good at telling you what something means and what the probability of that is going forward. And then I think also they're very good at saying, if your child has this, this is what that means. So they can be very, very useful. Now, unfortunately, like 
other colleagues of ours, um, they could say, well, this means this, and as a result of this, you should consider having an abortion. Um, so how can a, a family trust them? Um, I don't know. Referral, I think when you walk in to see a genetics counselor, just like when you walk in to see an obstetrician, you should say right off the bat, these are my beliefs. This is where I stand. So don't talk to me about something that's contrary to my beliefs. I, I don't want to discuss that. You should do the same with genetics counselors. But like physicians and other providers, there's a wide spectrum uh, of genetics counselors, but they can be very, very helpful. So how often would you refer somebody to see a genetic counselor? In my own practice and career, it actually turns out to be very uncommon. Uh, but there is a role. Frankly, the place that I tend to use them more is in an area that we've talked about before, inherited mutations that are related to breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Ah. And, you know, the woman wants to know what is my probability? What about my daughter's probability? Do I need to have my sisters tested? Things like this. That's where I find them so to be So not very related useful. to the prenatal testing at not all? Not so much in my current practice, no. Okay. I guess, Chris, another way of thinking about this, kind of the other side of things, um, People do testing, prenatal testing, because we want largely reassurance. Mm. It gives us information for trying to prevent problems or treat problems quickly when they arise. Um, but really, we want reassurance that things are going to be okay. For people who avail themselves to all this testing, how often does something go, you know, stressful go on, or a problem that wasn't tested, a problem, something like that? I think I've got an answer in my head. I don't know what you would say. <laughs> I can't give you a number, but I can tell you, talking with many, many, many patients through the years, it is not at all uncommon to have a couple say, I wish we didn't know. Yeah. And I bet oh. that's what you were thinking, too. <laughs> well, I, I, what I see so often is even the best laid plans, you know, mm -hmm. when you do everything and avail yourself, it, it, it almost seems like very frequently, I almost wonder if God's trying to teach us all something, people still have issues. Uh -huh. And they might not be big issues, but at least what I tell my kids, you know, everybody's got something. Mm. And, and so looking for this <laughs> yes. reassurance that uh, there's no problems here. Everything's going to be fine and lollipops and rainbows and stuff. Uh, <laughs> I've never met that person. Right. It almost you makes know? me think of the discussion we often have, those of us who have adopted children. And non-adoptive parents will say, well, aren't you worried about what you would get? And I say, yes, <laughs> uh, but I'm probably more worried about that with my biological children than I am. But the reality, your point is, we just don't know. And maybe more importantly, we're not in charge. That's amen. And I mean, that's when, when we're on the other side of things, you, you see the kids and you love them. But um, looking for complete reassurance, maybe that's not, not the best thing to do. Final words of wisdom, Chris? Well, be not afraid, uh, <laughs> as, as we've said before. But I guess I would want to leave people, all of this technology is fascinating and interesting, but in the reality, you've conceived a child, and that child is made in the image and likeness of our God, and it is perfect uh, in every way. And don't let any of this technology or any of the testing make you ever feel otherwise. We've got good information. We can help you make decisions and plans. But at the end of the day, that child is beautiful and perfect. A beautiful way to tie a bow on it. And we'll be back with the outro of our show here on Dr. Doctor in just a moment. And we are back with Dr. Doctor. And Tom, I don't know why, but <laughs> medical terms always revolve around food stuff. You know? <laughs> they do. It, it makes my wife too. mad because I'm always bringing up little food analogies to pathology, and she's like, oh, so gross. <laughs> Tell us the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, that covering that is a natural lubricant on little babies is called vernix caseosa. Uh, which, you know, caseosa from casein, the protein in milk. It really means cheesy varnish <laughs> is, is the translation. And what's it made of? Two things mainly, dead skin cells, that's a protein, and then the oil from your sebaceous glands or oil glands. So it, it is cheesy because it's oil, oil and protein together, mm. which be would probably please our guests that we had on about, you know, carbohydrates and all that. But that's a separate <laughs> issue. It, it would be hard to think of a better name. <laughs> it, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And it, it isn't particularly attractive on newborns. Oh, no? Some of them are covered in it, and they look rather bizarre. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of mythology about uh, and folklore about 
you know, the vernix. And some people will not want to rub it off. Yes. Or they'll want to rub it in like a lotion. Um, some people are very opposed to bathing the baby for fear of somehow stealing or robbing the beneficial effects of, of the vernix. Uh, truth be told, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of, you know, a lot of emotion, a lot of. You typically wash it off. Well, you know, after a couple of days, babies start to smell, smell. like not flowers. And, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you tend to wash it off. There's no rush to wash it off. Right. Um, I'm sure it has a purpose. Everyone says, oh, it's to protect the baby when they're underwater. That seems logical. I don't know if that's true. Oh, it does a lot of those things. Grease the skids. Yeah, it does a lot of things. But our top three takeaways for this episode are: we could talk about vernix more. Yes, we'll do an episode <laughs> on that. We'll save that one. Put it in the hopper. Well, my top three has nothing to do with vernix. Um, that was the dermatology trivia. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to prenatal testing, I guess the the point I might leave with listeners is: um, less is more in some cases. You know, from this day forward, we'll have more tests and more technology, just because something is available doesn't mean that you have to pursue it. Understand what you're asking when you get a test because you're asking a question and then understand what you'll do with the answers before you get them. I guess my point would be that uh, it's not a sin mm. to test or to not test for these prenatal tests. And I wouldn't make assumptions about other people who chose to test or not test either. Mm. But if, if you want to test, I think it's okay. Good point. And uh, with each test that you get, know what you're going to do with the result afterwards. If, you know, a couple talks and you wouldn't do anything different, don't do the test. But that's good medical advice across every specialty, isn't it? Oh, we, that was drilled into us in my residency training. 100%. Don't order the test unless it's going to change your treatment. Mm. So we thank you listeners for choosing to be w with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Uh, just click on episode archive and you can search over 280 episodes by topic or guest. And now you can watch us on some of our episodes on the video version. If you just click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org, you can see as well as listen to these episodes. And there's a place also you can click to submit a question. So if you have a question or a great idea for a topic, please send it to us because we'd love to hear from you. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Strauss. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.